Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 45th episode of the Truth Island podcast. If you've ever known someone who has read a lot of philosophy, literature, or is constantly stuck in a somewhat abstract realm, you might have noticed that they are, well, pretty strange and awkward. You may have observed that some of these thinkers aren't into the same things as most people. They don't really care if they are highly popular or liked. They speak their mind more freely. They may have an odd sense of fashion and have little to no idea of what is exactly going on in the world around them. What is also incredible about them is their innate ability to have long discussions on a single esoteric thought for not just five minutes, but for hours, hours, and hours. Is there something wrong with these people? Or is it that the books and ideas that have filled their minds have shifted the way that they behave? I am once again joined with fellow philosopher Kenny. Kenny, tell me what's wrong with us. <laughs> Hello, Aaron. Um, I think there is something wrong with us. <laughs> um, Someone once described philosophy as, I think, sympathy with God. And I think that's like the idea that, you know, we see things kind of like from a different vantage point. And what we see matters a lot to us, you know. Mm. And it's not that everybody has eyes, everybody sees things. But to the philosopher, they're paying attention to what they see. And they're trying to ask questions of what they see. And because they're asking questions, they're getting answers and they're getting some of, sometimes they're getting very strange answers. I think often the answers a man gets makes the man. So if you're getting strange answers, you're becoming a strange, you're going to be a strange person. Yeah, man. I, I love that. That was beautiful. I, I like this idea that even the first word you said, like sympathy with God, I feel like, you know, and, and this is, this is going to be a loaded statement because the atheists are going to be like, well, what if you don't believe in God? But I think that we can use the word sympathy with God in the sense of understanding the universe. And I think that applies for whether you're a scientist or an atheist or just a, a theologian, uh, you know, a religious philosopher, that, that's what you're kind of trying to do. You're trying to understand the world around you through a lot of questions. And then like the better your questions are, the better you understand the world around you. Whereas people who don't ask questions, they may not care all that much about what's going on around them. Yeah, I mean, it's, unfortunately, this is the norm. Um, so there's this place that, I, I live in Moscow, Idaho, and there's this place called the Big House. and it's actually, it's the home of a good friend of mine, Evan Wilson. And he, they have a motto in his home. It's called, it's the thought that counts. And basically what he's saying is, you know, what you think matters. What you, the, the, how, you how you engage with this life, those questions you ask and, and the answers you get really do matter. And they do shape the kind of person you become. So we find that a lot of people aren't really, you know, asking questions and aren't really uh, paying attention to the world around them. Hey, I wonder why that is. I'm wondering why it is like the people in the big house and you and I, and then probably a few others, why it is that we have this like insatiable curiosity to ask questions and understand the world that we live in. 
And I, I'm gonna just, I don't know if this is the answer, but I'm gonna just venture a guess. I noticed that a lot of these philosopher types have had a lot of pain and isolation in their life. And maybe that pain and isolation uh, wasn't something that they initially sought out. It was something that was thrusted upon them. And when you're alone, right, and you're hurting, you begin questioning, well, why don't other people like me? Or why did this happen to me? Or why did my dad act that way to me? And I think that that pain and suffering makes you ask a lot of questions. And perhaps, you know, these kind of like traumatic things that happen in childhood might pivot someone into becoming a philosopher. But if they had a happier childhood, then maybe they would never have become uh, a philosopher. I don't know if that's true. Maybe there's some totally happy-go-lucky philosophers out there that never had darkness. And, and, and by the way, I don't think my childhood was that especially bleak or anything like that. But I think I did have some painful moments that really made me question things. Yeah, I think that it's, I think it's very possible. But I think that there's, there's another side to that coin. Now, when it comes to pain, pain has a way of waking us up in that when we experience pain, for some reason, it makes us more alert. It makes us realize we have bodies. We have something. We have some of us even realize that we have souls. There will be others who argue against it. And so pain wakes you up to something. It's, it's the feeling you cannot ignore. When you stub your toe on your bed in the morning, you're, the pain is saying, hey, there's a bed there. Don't do that again, you know? So I think that you're right in that pain does that. But there are people who don't really experience much pain, much, uh, you know, they don't really, they never really had a traumatic childhood. And, you know, and they are happy-go-lucky and they do end up becoming philosophers. And I think this is where it, it gets different is that those guys are simply, they're people who, for one reason or the other, pay more attention to the life, to the life they're living, to the world around them, either through some, you know, an experience of nurture, or it could be part of their nature. Um, but they do pay attention uh, to the world that you're living in. Yes, yes. I, and I, I love what you said about stubbing your toe, because it's like, you're you're going to make sure that I remember I had this table in my living room uh, when I was a kid growing up, and I banged my toe like a thousand times on that thing. And then it was actually like an old sled. My yeah. stepfather had converted an old sled to a table. And oh my God, did I did I hit my toes on that thing? <laughs> but but that made me question like, okay, like, like how can I put how can we put this table somewhere else? Or how could we cover the sharp edges on this table slash sled so that this doesn't happen? So you have that. Now moving to your happy-go-lucky. Um, thinker or philosopher, do you think, Kenny, it's possible that maybe they're happy, but they kind of want something? So they, they I, I'm thinking kind of like a scientist, like maybe this scientist really wants to send like the first men to, to Pluto. I, I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah. And they're happy scientists, good childhood, good everything, but that desire to send the, the first men or the first people to Pluto is causing them to ask lots and lots of questions. Okay, how could we have adequate food? And, and just that desire to, to, to gain something is making you, you curious. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think that human beings are by nature philosophical beings because we're always asking questions. I mean, philosophy is the love of wisdom. Yeah. The love of, I mean, it's, it's so it is definitionally, it is the love of wisdom. 
Um, but we're doing more than just um, how you say, sitting down on a, on a hill somewhere, hugging ourselves at how wise we are. <laughs> I do a little bit of that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I call that a regular Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> we're so wise, Kenny. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> so because we are naturally questioning beings, I mean, you ask, you have kids asking you questions of, you know, why is the sky blue? You know, you know, why does a dog bark? And, you know, why is this person tall or short and so forth? And, you know, um, I think ever since we're kids, we, 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 we have this weird desire to ask questions about the world we're living in and to understand what's going on. Now, a lot of Often those questions get shut down, kids get bored and so sure. forth. But the fact that we are, we are, um, that's, that's, that's how we begin demonstrates, a, 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 I would say, a, a philosophical disposition for, I would say, all of mankind. Yes, 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 I, I, I agree with that. Children by and by are very curious. And I, I will get that, I, I will admit that. And I will say that the system does have a way of, of, of shutting them down and then telling them like, no, 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 if you don't have that 50 citations, you, you can't have an original thought or you can't have original questions. Yeah. I did like, I would say this was maybe a year and a half ago. I did have some experience working with second and third graders. And I did notice though, that some of those third graders were more curious than others. So Absolutely. like, like, you know, that there were, there was like some third graders that asked were more inquisitive and more curious about the classroom. And, and I was like teaching um, third grade science and we were doing a lot of experiment experiments. So I'm wondering, yes, the system does shut everyone's mind down to a certain degree. I a hundred percent endorse that idea. But I'm also wondering, why is it that you have some very curious third graders and then they go on to become really curious adults? And then there's another set of adults that, is, that say, this phrase I hate more than any other phrase in, in, in English. It's on my top list. It is what it is. It is, it is what it is. And why is it that we have is what it is people and then we have this other subset of people that are like, well, why is it that way? Like that's, that's what's driving me nuts. Yeah. I <laughs> well, it is what it is. <laughs> Get off my show. That's it. <laughs> no, I think, I think, okay. It depends because I, 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 I understand what you're saying. And I, I think you're right. There are those who are far more curious about how you say it, a, a far more general and broad on, on a far more general and broad spectrum. But then when you give the other kid who's not so curious, uh, you know, a comic book about Superman, and all of a sudden he's got a thousand and one questions. So I would say that it's, it, it has to, it's, it's more, as, as far as I can see, a matter of interest. Some kids have a broader range, a broader range of interests, and others just have a short wick, you know? Sure. Um, but I, I would say that it has more to do with their interests in life, and 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 that's that's and then they channel those carry those questions towards those things that they find you know interesting and 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 have got cut cut their attention. I think no, I think that's a brilliant uh, point, Kenny, because 
I think that we all have the capacity to be philosophers in the niche that we are interested in. Like there might be a kid that's a philosopher of basketball or a philosopher of a certain video game or something because they're constantly asking questions like, how can I get better at this game? How can I get better at it? How can I get better? Yeah. And they, they don't meet the formal criteria of like having read Nietzsche and all this other, you know, this, this other stuff, but they do have innate curiosity in the one passion that they are pursuing. That's a really good point. Let's go ahead and shift gears a little bit to this idea of detachment a little bit. And I, I was speaking to this woman, you know, maybe about a week ago, and, and she also kind of fashions herself a philosopher. And I think her her husband or boyfriend was like, how come you're not worried about the pandemic? Why, why aren't you worried about getting sick or anything? And, you know, she's wearing a mask and doing all the right stuff. But she's like, my thoughts are just not there right now. And I, I think that sometimes us philosophers get labeled as being like aloof or detached from reality, like we're not, we don't have our nose buried in, in the New York Times. Although when the pandemic actually first began, I was reading the Times every day. Subsequently, I'm like enough of this, it's just depressing me. But we, we tend not to always have our nose in current events or in the problems of of the moment. Like I, I, I liken us to like, imagine you have like a leaky roof, but you're just so lost in your in, in your thoughts. And I, I think I think the best example is the philosopher uh, like uh, Wittgenstein, where he was actually, when he wrote his his book, he was actually a soldier in the trenches of World War One. Like he had guys being blown up around him, like losing their legs and stuff. And he was like writing his philosophy, his philosophical book in the trenches of World War One. I. I mean, talk about detachment where you're in the middle of a war zone and you've got like a notepad and you're writing like your philosophical treatise down. I, I think that's kind of it's kind of odd that we can be that detached at times. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th that's true in that there is a sense of detachment that happens when you begin to see things, I would say, differently. All of a sudden, you're not worried about those fancy shoes anymore. You're not worried about your suit. You're not worried about your dinner burning in the, in the oven and, and all that. But at the same time, it's not so much, I don't think it's more a so much a detachment as it is an act. I see it more as a, as a, as a as a as a as a hyper attachment mm. because what's happening is you are you're attached to something else oh. you're attached to the you're it's almost like you're attached to the to the to the real fibers of reality in that you don't you don't let you don't sweat the little things you don't sweat the 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 things on the surface you're trying to get down to the to the deep end of the pool to figure out what really makes this pool tick, you know, you're trying to figure out how it works. And so your, your head is always, you know, um, buried in the water, um, but the water is still part of, it's still part of the pool. It's still part of what's going on. Yeah. Um, but everybody else is like, Oh my goodness, there's leaves floating about. And uh, I think that's a third <laughs> in there. Like, no, no, that doesn't bother me. <laughs> I really want to figure out the dimensions of this pool. I want to figure out, you know, why is, why does it, you know, why does the water stay where it's supposed to stay? You know, why, why even the things on the surface, why are they floating and stuff like that? So I think we're, we're more attached to the real, I wouldn't say real, but I would say a very, a, the deeper fibers of life, the, 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 the more essential 
um, worries or troubles of life. What you're saying here about like this pool and it's like you're sitting in that pool, right? And it's not that you're unaware that you're in a pool. It's just that you might be looking at the tiles on the bottom. You might be yeah. looking at the chlorine and then wondering, oh, how is this chlorine interacting with my eyes? Or like, if, if I really wanted to, could I hold my breath for 20 minutes? Like you're, you're, you're kind of interacting with that space in, in you're, you're, you're interacting with the pool, but you're interacting with the pool in such a deep way that the outsider looks at you and says, oh, well, that person is just staring into space. Like I've, I've heard the expression like the thousand yard stare or something where it, it looks yeah. like that you're in a coma and that you're just completely lost. But in reality, you're aware, you're hyper, hyper aware of where you are and you're actually thinking about it at a very deep level. Yeah. This is why I think that comedians or philosophers, like they're like <laughs> philosophers, long lost cousins, you know? Yeah, they are. They're like, they're like the <laughs> philosophers who you can, you know, um, grab a beer with and then, you know, just, just I don't know. It's, they're just like, they're like more fun philosophers, you know? <laughs> Everyone wants to hang out with them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, we, do, we do, you know, because, because they're, they're thinking along the same, they're thinking along a, along a different axis than most people. And you're seeing things. That's why, I mean, comedians are always making observations about life. They yeah. Say, Isn't it funny that, you know, kids I'll are... tell you, I'll tell you the oldest joke. Like, what do you call an unfunny comedian? What is it? A philosopher. A philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, <done. laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's, that's basically, that's basically, um, comedians are on this, and they're, they're on this spectrum too, because they're looking at life from a very different axis. A comedian is the only, comedians and philosophers are basically the only people who can get away with saying, I hate children. I like, I dislike <laughs> kids and then back it up and, you know? teacher, and teachers and teachers <laughs> you I know? <laughs> and then back it up with something clever you know it's like yeah. um so yeah you're right We're, we are looking um comedians philosophers they are looking at life from a very different they are in the pool they're experiencing the pool but they're far more interested on the lateral um vision of things there's also like a a deep sense of self-awareness and mindfulness that that kind of comes into play here because I think the average person thinks like I'm angry and and I'm uh, you know and and I kind of liken this to like therapy or or some of these other things or or, or mindfulness is that the average person has a, a gauntlet of emotions that they go throughout the day, but yeah. I think it takes like a true philosopher to be like why was I really why did I snap at that person at two fifty p.m. You know, like, like, and I, I think the average person just feels like these emotions are like the colors of the rainbow. We just, for, for, we just randomly go through these emotions. We just naturally go through these thoughts, but it's actually the philosopher that at the end of the day, you know, or the next morning will, will have their cup of coffee and be like, wait a minute. I was a little ashamed about how I acted at two fifty yesterday. Why was that? What, what led up to that? And I, I think that, that 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 takes a, a huge deal of of mindfulness, which I think good comedians and philosophers have. Yeah, I mean, I th I think you're right. I mean, those are the questions that those are the questions that actually reveal yourself to yourself. You find out the kind of person you are. You find out what your real motivations are. You find out, you know, this is why it's important for philosophers to be honest. No pretenses, and no, you know, weird passion hiding behind 
some because you know human beings are pretty we're pretty smart believe it or not i mean we're pretty smart and we're, we're, we're good at deceiving ourselves sure um so the the philosophers the the philosopher's duty is to find out those places where he's you know he has his blind spot and turn his head there so that he can see it clearly do you do you think that uh kenny you need to have a sense of bravery to be a philosopher and, and here's where i'm going with this i think that if you are a philosopher you might find out some stuff that's really ugly about yourself and you might find out some stuff that's really ugly about other people and perhaps perhaps people like like average people have an inclination that something's not quite right but they know that once they like with plato's cave once they leave the comfort of the shadows, the the sun will blind them. Like it will, it will, it, it, like, like, like the truth is going to absolutely blind them. And I think you have to have a sense of bravery in order to, to run towards that truth. Yeah. I, here's the thing. I wouldn't even say that it's bravery. And here's why I wouldn't say that it's bravery because a brave, let's imagine two brave men. Um, one and we, we can use the allegory of the cave. So one of them finds out, oh my goodness, this is in fact, you know, it's all fake and the real world is behind me and I've got to turn around and see it. The brave man gets, one of the brave men gets up, he says, okay, I'm going to go see it. I'm going to be brave. I'm going to go look at that blinding light, right? The other one says, well, I'm also, I'm prima, I'm a brave man too. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bravely sit here because he's going to convince himself, find a way to make sure that his bravery, how you say, his bravery backs up what he wants to do. So he will bravely sit there and not do anything about it. And this is, we may say, okay, well, he's just pretending to be brave. Well, maybe, but it's often hard to tell. And it's often hard to tell the motivations of people. But the point is that I can see bravery actually choosing to do bending in upon itself to choose to do something that would otherwise be cowardly in that it's it's he's being motivated by something else he's being motivated by something else but he's holding he's holding strongly to it on the count of his bravery so i don't know if that makes any sense but i will say that the best kind of person that actually turns around and goes to see that world is not the brave person but a person who is hungry a starving man, hmm. a starving woman, somebody who is tired of anything but what is true, what is honest. Uh, there's a lot to unpack here um, in, in terms of the bravery thing. And, and you're right, it's really difficult to see people's motives. I'll give you an example. You know, I'll, I'll, let's talk about the first thing and then we'll, we'll move on to the second thing about the, about the, um, the starving person. But on the first account... I think this is where comedians also differ between philosophers. And this is, this yeah. is a critical distinction. When a comedian is touching upon something that's too true, and you kind of see this with uh, like late night television comedians and things like that. When the comedian is too close to the truth, what do they do? They use humor to diffuse the situation. They, they kind of know that like, uh-oh, we're going, we're going into some really dangerous territory, but aha, it's a funny joke. You don't really yeah. have to think about it all that much. Let's just, aha, we laughed and let's move on to the next thing on my agenda or whatever. Yeah. Whereas I kind of think that the comedian is aware 
that what they have touched upon is really, 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 really important to address. And it's really, they, they, they recognize it as a truth, but they are kind of making the cowards move in a sense. And, and you know, I hate calling comedians cowards, whatever, because that's not their job. Their job is to make us laugh. So I'm not yeah. saying that this is like a deliberate, it's not always like a deliberate thing, but in a sense, a lot of other people and not just comedians, they see that the conversation is getting really awkward. It's getting really dark. And they're, they're just like, you know, have you ever been up on a, you know, if you're going up on a roller coaster, imagine there was a button that could, you could just press, but like, no, 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 I'm not going on this ride. And you just got off. Right. Imagine you're like that. Imagine you're that annoying dude at Six Flags Great Adventure. That's like, everyone stop the ride. I can't go on this. Right. And and that's what a lot of people do. They see, uh-oh, 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 danger, danger, danger. And then they stop the ride with a stupid joke or some, some laughter. But the yeah. philosopher is like, no, I am going down this roller coaster. It's going to scare the shit out of me. But humanity and myself are going to be better for doing it. So I think that that person in the cave might think that they're they're rationalizing it and thinking that they're brave. But I think to some degree they have an awareness of of they're they're pressing the eject button. Yeah, I mean, I, I would hope so. Um, <laughs> I would hope so. And you know, that's that's why. That's why philosophers often make people uneasy. Yes, we do. Um, and comedians, you know, because they have this eject button, people find it easier to have a beer with them for, you know, for an extended amount of time. And, but I, but I, I, I see what you're saying. And I hope that the person sitting there thinking that he's bravely staying there, you know, because I think we can, it's, it's simply a matter of deceiving ourselves. It's simply a matter of saying, you know, I'm going to bravely do this cowardly thing. Um, so I hope they can see it because it's it's a very strange phenomena. It's a very strange thing to happen, you know. But the human the the, the human mind is a very interesting place. It is. It, it is, and it's like, you know, I, just what you said about getting a beer with the comedian. It's like. I think 99% of the world would rather get a beer with a comedian than they would a philosopher. Absolutely. And they, because they know that the comedian is going to have the tact to, to be, haha, slightly awkward, but moving on to that, you know, like the comedian, see comedians feed off other people's energy. They, they feed off. Like if people aren't laughing at what they're saying, they're like, uh oh, uh oh, let me uh, let me uh, change my set here, or I, oh, I, I, I'm not reading the room properly. But us philosophers, we don't give a hoot about reading the room. We just don't care about how awkward we're standing and, and you know how awkward we appear because we're not here to read the room. We're here to speak truth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why uh, if you ever encountered in the Old Testament writings how the prophets were uh, stoned, killed, ripped apart, and ripped to shreds. I'll tell you a thing or two about people encountering truth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that um, philosophers are a very strange bunch. And I think that we are strange because of the way we look at the world. And it's it, 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 we, and we have a tendency to make the, the rest of the world um, incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, even even Socrates was like, "Screw this! I'm drinking this hemlock and getting out of here." You know, like <laughs> he, he he sort of the the writing on the walls there. Let's go ahead and and I like what you said about this uh, second point you made about the cave, and and I, I think you you have some considerable ground on me on here. Is this idea that 
we are not necessarily philosophers because we're ultra brave people, but maybe we're just extremely restless and bored. And this is something that, that might actually be true because maybe me, you know, you and I are not just really brave people. Maybe we're just incredibly bored and we can't function within the banality of like, yeah, yeah, the Yankees of football. Like we can't function in that world of banality and that kind of forces us to seek higher ground. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, no, no, no. I think, I think you're onto something here because I realized something many years ago that I could only take so much of um, small talk. And I, I always try to make sure that I give people an opportunity that whenever, when, wherever I am, I make sure that I give people an opportunity and a freedom to be themselves. And with that being said, there's a point where in the, you know, maybe an hour into a conversation about, you know, whether it's, you know, football or the weather, get the weather. I, I realized that, okay, I've got to simply get out of here. I'm not going to force anybody to talk about what I want to talk about. And I don't even have anything I want to talk about personally, Yeah. but I'd rather be doing something else. I really, I'd rather be somewhere else. You know what I mean? That's true. You ever had this one before where, and this is the most antisocial thing of me to say, have you ever been at a party and you've been like, I'd rather just be at home reading a book right now. This is, and then like people, people would be like, what? You would sacrifice flesh and blood people over some stupid author that lived 300 years ago. And I'm not saying that that is always the case. If I'm at the right party, uh, with the right people, I would rather be at that party. Like I definitely have a preference for, you know, flesh and blood humans than I do someone who lived 300 years ago. But if I'm in the wrong party, I would rather spend time with Dostoevsky than people who just want to talk about football or whatever all day long. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. There's a way to even make the conversation about football very interesting in that, you know, like, for like, example, I mean, like I said, at the big house, there are, we talk about everything from cannibalism to does God exist? And um, football is part of part of, you know, is one of those things. And it becomes interesting, because questions, strange and lateral questions are being asked about football, what is football, actually, what is it? What is it accomplishing? And there was a theory brought up once that football is actually one is one of the peacemakers in America, because it is a way for people to get out their war-like aggression. Mm, I like this. You know, and <laughs> it's like, okay, that's pretty interesting, right? Like, all of a sudden, here's this weird sport that someone is looking at and saying, you know what? If we took football away from this country, people would start killing each other. So <laughs> <laughs> when you describe football that way, Kenny, man, yeah, I, I got to like, start watching. Like, oh, man, this is a... <laughs> Pass me the popcorn, you know? <laughs> we just uh, we made, a, made a goal there. Obviously, yeah, not a goal. It's a touchdown, touchdown right? <laughs> yeah, I was just messing around. Um, so I know that much, man. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody help us. So there was, so you see, there, there's an interesting part. It's not the, anything, anything. I think if anything, any topic is on the table for a philosopher, but the general public, well, most people don't want to go out of the, they don't want to think outside of the norm. And it's not simply, some people can't, they just can't. And some yeah. people don't want to because it makes them incredibly uneasy. Yes. And it makes them uneasy for one of two reasons. Either they think they're not smart enough 
or they think by looking at themselves doing it. So sometimes you have been in a situation where you're doing something and you're looking at yourself doing the thing. It's like, look at me holding my kid. Don't I look like a great father? People do that often. We look, we look at ourselves from without ourselves, you know? Yes. And so someone sitting down there and talking, quote unquote, philosoph philosophically about football, to him, looking at himself, he may look stupid. And so he doesn't want to feel that. that so there's so much baggage um, with, 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 with those kinds of topics. Uh, not topics, but those kinds of uh, situations. And uh, we generally avoid them. Yes, yes. I also want to talk about, there's also a third person. There's the person that just isn't able to, for whatever reason. And we can have another discussion about like PIJs, like, stages of development like some people never get past the concrete stage of development and make it to the abstract reasoning well let's table that for a side there's yeah. a person that's highly insecure and they they aren't there but i would also kenny that there's a third person and that's the person that's prejudiced against us philosophers there is yeah there is a person out there that is like and i've met them before I hate I hate these philosophers. They just sit around and talk, and they don't accomplish anything. I'm a I'm a businessman. I accomplish. Yeah, I I accomplish so much. They just overthink everything, and they don't really do anything. All of them are unemployed, and all of them are giant waste on society. So I, I'm wondering, like, like it, it's not there is some hostile. Like some of the normies do have like hostility towards us. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's very possible. I mean, for, for one thing, philosophers really haven't helped themselves um, on, in that arena in that often philosophers are those with those kind, those kind of analytical and, you know, poetic and um, metaphysical mind can be bastards, you know? There they are some, be, yeah. Yeah, some of them can be unpleasant to, to actually talk to because they're very condescending. Yes. Or some of them can be very, you know, not one of the guys. Like, sure, be a philosopher, but please be able to <laughs> throw a football. You know? Yes, yes. Be yeah, able yeah. to chop wood. Be <laughs> able to, you know, arm wrestle, for goodness sake. Yes, you know? yeah, right? You're, you're living in this world where, yeah, you're a philosopher, and this, this, is, your, this is what you do. This is what, you know, what you love. This is who you are, really, because it, at, at the end of the day, it ends up becoming a part of who you are and how you see the world. But you're dealing, you're living in a world where the rest of the world doesn't look like you. They don't think like you. They don't behave like you. And one thing we know about the world is that if anything strange or anything sticks out, we kill it. Yeah. We don't like anything to stick out. Okay. So be a philosopher, but also be something else, you know, use, use your philosophy, use that love of philosophy and your, 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 um, your quirky vision of the world to interact, interact, interact with the world. You know what I mean? I, you are right on just so many points here, Kenny. And when you talk about like the stereotypical philosopher, I do think of some kid wearing like tight jeans and really skinny and scrawny looking and being like these types of philosophers, the ones that give philosophy uh, a bad reputation, they also tend to be really, really, really into the semantics of things and not the substance of things. You, you'll be talking to somebody and you know what their intentions are. And then, but that, that skinny jean, 
philosopher will be like, no, your initial presupposition was that. And it's like that, right? Like, 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 and that person is giving us a very bad reputation, no matter how brilliant they are and no matter how many degrees from Oxford or whatever they achieved. It's like, you are making the world hate us. Like, please stop doing this. And it's like, you can tell like, if you have fellow friends that are on that same intellectual or, or, or that same plane, okay, fine, be, pull out the book of semantics there. But if you're talking to a, a common person and that person is speaking from the heart and they're speaking from a very good place, don't be a jerk and throw semantics into their face because they're not, what you're doing is you're doing a number of things. One, you're pissing them off and making them hate you, but you're yeah. also stereotyping and you're also kind of like, perpetuating this this idea that the philosophers are useless creatures and and this is this is like really 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 bad pr and i also love the second thing that you touched upon is that as a philosopher you must have other hobbies and interests you need to play you need like you have to do martial arts you have to do um some other hobby that makes people respect you and this is really important because if you if you are just known as the philosophy dude then that's all you will be seen as but if you have other qualities and think about it if you're a lover of wisdom why what what would be your aversion to learning martial arts or learning something else that will grow you and make you more broad so i i think us as philosophers we need to be doing all of those things especially when we're interfacing with the general public yeah love it's 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 wisdom you know it's and it's it's wisdom in the world it doesn't have to be wisdom of the world but it's it's being wise in this world you're living in you know and in this world you're living in, it's good to know how to change an oil, you know, how to change the oil in your car. It's good to know how to fill up a gas tank. It's good to know how to talk to women. It's good to know how to talk to men. It's good to know how it's 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 just it, these are just very, very, how you say, important things, especially for philosophers to to really get into. And and I think it's really philosophers that can get into these things really well. Yes. Because as they do it, they're real. They they start thinking about it, and they start thinking about it from a very interesting and uh, uh, weird vantage point, and they end up becoming pretty darn good at it. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I'm I'm thinking about Nietzsche for one second, and this is actually. I mean, I like a lot of stuff that Nietzsche wrote, but here's actually something that I really disagree with Nietzsche quite a bit on. Here is when What's he that? wrote when he wrote uh, like Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And, and, and to give a little background, you know, he was a very frustrated university professor because no one would actually attend his lectures. <laughs> like he, he, they, they said, dude, you're, you're too out there, man. Like you're, you're boring or whatever. And he gets to this point where he's like, well, screw humanity, screw talking down to you people. My work is only for the privileged few. So he just made this like critical distinction that like, I don't care if you ever read uh, The Gay Science or Thus Spoke Zarathustra or Beyond Good and Evil. I don't care if only a hundred people on this earth read this book. And I think this is another fallacy or just another thing that, that we can't fall into the trap of. I think that we always, like, we, we have to, we can learn one thing from the comedian, and that is we need to speak the truth, even if it makes people feel uncomfortable, but we have to speak the truth in a way that people actually even understand what it is that we're saying. Yes. Yeah. That, bruv, that is super, super cool that you said that. 
super cool that you said that because I 100% agree with this. I, I've been, I was thinking about this a couple of months back and I realized that, yeah, if you're talking, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're talking to, to a Chinese man, if you don't, if you speak Chinese, you're not going to want to speak English. You're going to speak Chinese. Japanese man, the same thing. If you're in Nigeria, you're going to speak pidgin or the traditional language. You're going to speak the language of the people, right? Yes, right. Please, for goodness sakes, don't. Why, why, why doesn't that translate into, you know, philosophical jargon? Yes, it should. People don't understand your jargon. They want to understand it in layman's terms. They want to understand it simply. I mean, and that's that's one of the that's one of the that's one of the things about the condescension. You know, I think humans love we love to be taken seriously. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. We live about many of us live about seventy years. Um, some of us live a bit longer than that, maybe ninety. But a good deal of us die by the time we're forty or fifty, and we want to be taken so seriously that we forget that one day we're going to die. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> we forget that one day we're going Not to us die. philosophers, we ponder that every day. <laughs> you know, it's like, dude, that's how unserious your life is. Yeah. It's about 70 years. That the tree that was there the day you were born is going to still be standing when you're dead. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. That's, that's how short your life is. And you want to be taken seriously, like, you know, like freaking Rambo. So... <laughs> It's like no, speak the language of the people. Don't be be a happy philosopher. You know, be a kind and gentle philosopher. Be a man or woman of of kindness and 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 love, and understanding. You know. Yeah, and I think I, I think that you know using I love your analogy with, imagine you were speaking to someone who was just learning English, right? They had just come from a foreign language. It would be so incredibly rude to use your ultra high Oxford vocabulary on someone who's really just trying to get subway directions, you know, you would be like, you know, you, you know, you wouldn't want to be like, Oh, well, the metropolitan system over here, you know, like you would be like, you would, you wouldn't want to like scare them away. You want to help them find the number seven train. And, and it's like, yeah. you would speak to them in a way that, that, that they could understand. And that's basic manners and etiquette. The second thing that, that I like that you said was that if you know, people have to remember about Nietzsche is that he was an incredibly miserable man who spent the, the last couple of years of his life in a, in a hospital, mental hospital. And if you have this mentality about you of I am superior than, than everyone else, I will speak in these ultra complicated tongues. I don't care if I'm not for the masses you're going to have an extremely miserable life. Like you're going to do a number of things. One, people won't understand you and you'll just probably die in obscurity. That's number one. And number two, you're going to be really, really, really miserable because you're going to be very much alone. And you might think in your solitude that you are best thing. The struggling genius. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, thank you for just jumping in there. Like you're going to, you're going to have like, this is all, you know, fan service, your ego of like, I am the struggling genius who lives in the bat cave. And it just comes up with these obscure works of, of, of books that, that, that the, the, the human masses 
will never understand in a thousand years, right? Like it's this delusion that like in a thousand years, an archeologist is gonna like dig up my, fo- my, my, my flash drive at this point and plug that sucker in and be like, whoa, there was this guy Azerod that lived a thousand years ago. Look what he had to say, you know? Oh my. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think we do need to speak the language of the people. I think that it's actually important for us because if we can articulate what we do understand in simple, in simple ways that even a child could understand it, if not, if not understand the concept, understand the words, then it, it's, it's very illustrative of our own grasp of those complex ideas. Yes. You know? So it's, it's very, you see, I've, I've been looking at these things and I find that sometimes when we're gentle with other people, for some reason or the other, our own brilliance is, how you say, elevated. It's weird. It's, it's exa- so weird. It's exactly what Einstein says. Einstein tells us that if we can't explain something to a sixth grader, then we ourselves do not know it. So if we cannot explain Boom. things, yeah, we, if we can't explain things in the simplest possible terms like sometimes there are people out there that also hide behind big words because they themselves do not have a deep understanding of what it is that they know and so they're they're hiding they're almost hoping that you don't see it's like it's like the it's like they're hope they're hiding behind a curtain hoping you don't notice they're naked yes yeah and big words tend to do that it's like you know big words do that i mean there's Sometimes uh, I've ever seen the film um, Dinner with Andre. Uh, no, no, I have not. Okay, if you ever get the chance to, please do. So it's about these two friends who um, reconnect after years of you know doing their own thing and um, experiencing life. <clears throat> so they reconvene at this restaurant, and the, move, the whole film takes place in one restaurant, and it's a it's a conversation throughout. Brilliant, and they're chatting about all kinds of things. But one of the friends. Andre, he says at some point in, the, in, in at some point in his life, his he went to visit I believe his mother who was dying in a hospital, and the doctor walks into the hospital wearing his you know lab coat, his white his doctor's <laughs> garments, and his uh, stethoscope over his neck, and goes to his mother, t- takes up her arm, looks at it left right, and says, "Oh, she'll be fine," and he walks away. And Andre says that that was just horrific because he knew very well that his mother was not going to be fine. The second thing was he didn't really do anything. He didn't check on her, nothing. Just had this, it was like theater. It was Mm. pretending to, it was playing a part of the doctor, you know? So my point is that sometimes it's big words do that very, you know, lab coats do that the scientists don't you yes. know he's wearing a white coat you know it's like we hide behind things so often we hide behind our language we hide behind our clothing we hide behind our friends don't you know who my friends are mm. we hide behind our fathers and our mothers we hide behind so much and we find that a lot of the human experience for most people it's actually hiding it's coward it's it's just a cowardice um life and uh and pretenses so I, I like I love I love the uh, the the white lab coat analogy, and I think that a lot of I'm not I'm not going to say every, but I'm going to say that there might be like a good amount of philosophical jargon that is really like a fancy necktie. 
Like it's just, it's just like, it, it's, it's really kind of like, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I'm using all of these really complicated words and that's me being, that's me pretending to be a scientist or me pretending to be a doctor. And these fan, these fancy philosophical terms and this jargon is because us philosophers don't have a uniform. Maybe we should come up with a uniform. This way we don't need to hide behind words and stuff. We'll just wear a uniform and be like, oh, don't you, uh, do you not yeah. see the, do you not see the pajamas here? I'm a philosopher. I, thank you. <laughs> right? The teddy bear, teddy bear printed pajamas. Yes. Yeah. That, that'll be a, Pink ads, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, like if we had some kind of uniform or, or yeah. some kind of calling card, I don't know what, then maybe we wouldn't have to like try and dress up how smart we are with fancy words. And then, and then, cause that, that is also just generalized insecurity, right? It's like, it's just insecurity of, I, I, I don't feel like I have purpose and therefore I need to dress up my speech with words. And it also kind of falls back to what else you're saying. If you have other hobbies and other things that define you, then you don't need to always push the gas pedal on your philosophy background as much because you have other dimensions, uh, you know, about yourself. I, oh, I'm also an Olympic athlete, so you can kind of exercise that persona more, and then you don't, you're not as insecure about your f- philosophy heritage. Yeah, I mean, I, I know, I know a friend of mine actually a couple of friends of mine that are like this in that they are, they're brilliant, they're philosophers, theologians, and so forth. But when they introduce themselves, they introduce themselves as very, you know, very weird and obscure, very different things. You know, um, one might be introducing himself as a carpenter. Not He's not lying. He is, in fact, a carpenter, but, mm. you know, his, he has a, he's a philosopher. He's, his know? name's not Jesus by any chance. <laughs> <laughs> you caught me. You see right through me. (laughs) But, you know, it's this idea that you don't have to wear your, because being a, being a philosopher is a, is a, it's a, it's still seen, it's, it's decreasing, but it's still seen as a prestigious thing. It's a very, it's a, it's, it's a prestigious title. And so when you introduce yourself as a philosopher, people still have that, oh my, oh, tell us something interesting. You know, I, it's funny. Actually, it's, I, I don't know what circles you're in because here in New York, if you introduce somebody, if you introduce yourself as a philosopher, it's frowned upon. You're actually thought to be ho- you're thought to be homeless, or you're thought to be <laughs> like, like 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 you're you're one of two things. You're homeless, or you're a trust fund baby. That's like the two the two things that kind of come to mind to the New Yorker. If you if you dare tell someone you're a philosopher, you're a trust fund baby, or you're homeless. So, something's going on here. So I, I really need to get to Moscow. And, and, and because like, like I, I, you know, where, where introducing yourself as a philosopher actually opens doors for you because here it, it, it's seen, it, it's seen as something, it kind of implies you have idle time and it, it just applies that you don't have a stable job. Like it just, yeah. it has like negative, like we're, New Yorkers are all about money. And, and like we're all, I mean, as Americans, we're all greedy to some extent, but the, the, the eye of the storm right here is New York. And if you introduce yourself as something that does not make money, you are just instantly shunned. <laughs> no, my goodness. Okay, so it's I, it's not the same over here. I think that people still do, um, at least in this community, in this area that I stay, people still do have some regard for 
for philosophers. But but I think generally everybody loves a person who's making loves a person who's making money. Yes, they yes. just do, you know. So when my friend Ma was telling me that when she introduces herself as a housewife, it's almost like you can see the face, you know, the person's face fall. Like, oh, is that all you do? It's like, oh, right. yeah, I take care of four children. You know, it's it's not easy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's it's it's. It's one of those. It's it's still a it's still a privilege ish, but I I don't think that we should wear wear it for that sake for that reason because the interesting thing is that a philosopher is often a philosopher for his own sake. Yes. In that, you know, the way you see the world is going to be how you the way you see the world and the questions you ask and the answers you get is going to determine how you live. It determines how happy you're going to be. It determines how you know what's important to you, what's not important to you. You can't give that to anybody else. You know, but it does make you interesting. You know, it makes you incredibly um, interesting. You know, I, I think I think it does have a little bit more weight if you say I am a carpenter, I am a, a lawyer slash philosopher. I think I think all of those things carry weight because it shows that like I do earn my own way in this world. I do. It also just is a reminder to people because. I think that we respect philosophers that have to ride the sub, like here in New York, ride the subway with everyone else and have a boss like everyone else and, and have a normal lifestyle. I think, I think that actually gives you more respect. And I think it actually enriches your philosophy quite a bit because if you are, let's say a trust fund baby or homeless, you, you don't know what it's like to have a boss. You don't know what it's like to work in an organization. You don't know what it's like to have a scheming coworker. But when you actually throw yourselves into the real world and have to, to deal with all of these social dynamics as the rest of society, as the rest of humanity, it actually makes your philosophy that much more richer. Yeah, I mean, and people can relate. They they can relate. You, know, you can relate to them, and they can relate to you. The gap has, the gap has been bridged. Yes, and. Um, it does. It does make. Uh, so the person, you know, the person who's sitting down reading philosophic books, philosophical books all day, and night, isn't necessarily a philosopher. Is the person who is actually thinking and interacting with this world in in that in in that you know questioning and answering um, mechanism going on, that is the philosopher. And you've got to be in that. You've got you've got to be in that and a part of that and answering those questions and dealing with those problems um, in your own way, and it's 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 incredibly appealing to people. Yes, absolutely. I I, I think, I and I think that your interaction with what I call the um, the concrete is how I like to think of this. So when you're a philosopher, if you're just saying wisdom, truth, authenticity you lose like, you know, 90% of the room. But if you're trying to, if you're trying to tell a story about authenticity and you're like, one day I was at work and my boss comes up to me and I tell the truth and I'm very authentic, you know, that kind of stuff actually gets people to listen because it, it teaches you as a philosopher, like, okay, I can talk with my philo my philosophy buddies and just say truth, just say authenticity and just speak at that really high level. However, if I actually want to help people, the rest of humanity, I got to take authenticity and truth 
and sort of make it into a parable or make it into a story that operates within the concrete so people will have a lesson or a takeaway. I think that's why the Bible is just a bunch of parables and stories, because if it was just written at a highly abstract level, then it would not nearly have the impact that it does. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons that, you know, um, I would say that it was incredibly important that Jesus told his stories, um, told those incredible truths in parables, because it it made it, sometimes you you read it, and you, you don't know what it's saying, but you know what it's saying, in that the ideas are not incredibly parsed out. They're not, it's not like a mathematical formula, but your heart in which, you know, again, people say, well, well, what does that mean? Well, you know what I mean. Your heart understands, you know what it's about. Yes. I think parables, parables get to the heart. They, they, they kind of bypass the intellect and get to the heart of the, of the human. And that's where often most people interact. And that's where most people, you know, sometimes what all, all sometimes what most people have. Yes, yes. And I, I, I think I think I think we're gonna come back to this topic in general, but I, I think we're right. I think that in, in fairness, we as a group of philosophers look really, really weird to the outside world. And and some of that we can explain away. And some of it, you know, like, oh, I'm sitting here in the pool looking at the tiles or whatever, and we can rationalize it. But I actually think that we have a responsibility to clean up our image a little bit because we want we want the world to see us in a favorable light and we also the goal of philosophy unless you're a selfish philosopher and you practice the philosophy of selfishness <laughs> I, I think all of us have a goal to help other people and we as a community need to start coming together and being like how can we help people yeah i mean i'm helping people yeah, I would say that I mean, <laughs> that's if you can get, hopefully if we can get a lot of the uh, philosophers and the um, thinkers in the community to actually get along with each other. Oh, yeah, um, we hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point, my friend. Oh. Penny, it was a pleasure having you today. Hey, it, was, it was great being on, Aaron. Thank you so much. This concludes the 45th episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.